either last week's message or this week's. And if there are no further questions on those, then we'll move to general Q&A. Question about last week's. Mm -hmm. um, the word leaven. Leaven, yes. Throughout the Old Testament, Gospels, even the epistles, it usually represents sin or evil. Yes. And you didn't say too much about the word when you were, the word leaven, when you were talking about the parable. Yeah. So le leaven, uh, beginning in Exodus 10, is almost always viewed as something negative. Um, and here, it's not. It's the same word. There's no, you know, magic Greek answer. Same word. It's just in a totally different context. And what Christ is saying is as sin spreads through the body, 1 Corinthians 5, there is a spreading of the gospel in the kingdom. There's a spreading of salvation or transformation in the kingdom. It's like that. Uh, it's not, they're not the same. It's just, it's like that. So I don't have any special uh, insight into the word itself. It's it's the same word that's usually were uh, used, First Corinthians, um, and elsewhere in, in the in the New Testament. I'd like to try something else on you. If I can, okay, if I can find my spot here again. Um, in Luke chapter twelve, which yes. is sort of where this Begin. begins. Mm -hmm. And, and you made a point last time of the therefore that was before these things. So the therefore is the context before. So uh, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say first to his disciples. So this is the beginning of the yep. discourse. He began to say first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Yep. Okay. Then if we continue this into chapter 13, I can do it on this phone. Um, we have this healing of a woman on the Sabbath, and they're indignant. And um, Jesus says to them, you hypocrites. Yep. Okay, so the passage started with warning of the of leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here's an example of it. Mm -hmm. So that sort of bookends this passage. And then right afterwards, it says, what do I compare the kingdom of God like? I mean, he's apparently exasperated with these people, you hypocrites. And then he says, well, what's the kingdom of God like? It's like leaven, which a woman hid in Peck's meal. So how can the word, and in that context, how can leaven have a suddenly a different meaning? Oh, uh, it, words work that way. <laughs> so, Not a very good answer. <laughs> the, 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 the word, the word, can have, uh, any word can have a variety of meanings given its context. So Christ sets a new context when he says, to what will I compare the kingdom of God? So he's not talking about hypocrisy. He's not talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about the kingdom of God. So our question is, well, how then is leaven like the kingdom of God? In what way? Well, I think um, he's responding to that hypocrisy, to that leaven, and maybe... Let me try something else. Okay, um, wait, wait. So give me your suggestion. What are you thinking? Of Matthew means? 13. Uh -huh. Matthew 13 is a collection of parables. And um, this parable is included there. Yep. And also included in that selection of parables is one about the tares. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is like someone who plants this good seed, and the enemy comes along and plants these tares. And his servants want to pull out the tares. He says, no, no, don't do that. So the tares and the wheat grow together. Mm -hmm. And... Maybe I don't understand that parable either, but um, 
the good and the evil grow together, at least in this context, until the end of the age. Then they'll be separated. Okay, and then in that same context, there's also the, the one with the dragnet, um, and the fish come in, and they're good fish and they're bad fish, and at mm -hmm. the end of the age is sorted out. And also in that is this uh, leaven being hidden in three pecks of meal. So I've always understood leaven to be evil, and with those other two um, uh, parables sort of bookending it, that um, this too is in this day and age now, the kingdom of God, it has this leaven spread through it, or the tares spread through it, or these bad fish along with the good fish. And mm. so that's the way I've seen that. And, you know, back into Luke, you know, the whole context, the beginning and end of the passage is about hypocrisy. And Jesus said that's the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and his response to that whole passage, he ends it with, with this parable that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which it wouldn't hit, wouldn't hit. Okay, uh, if you told your wife you are an ox. <laughs> this is hypothetical, right? <laughs> nine times out of, no, 99 times out of 100, that's going to be, you know, not received well. Right? Because ox and a woman are not like easily compared. But if after a hard day's work, I mean, she, you know, all day she was working and she just has, has done so much. And you said, you have worked like an ox. I am so proud of you. I'm so impressed by what you've done. Now ox may very well have a positive connotation. There's no magic in the word ox. There's no magic in the word leaven. It, it, it is a real concrete thing that can represent different things. So the, the question is, in this context, does it, like it normally does, represent something evil? In the Bible, nine times out of ten, leaven represents something bad. Here, it doesn't represent something bad. The reason I'm pretty confident about that is 21 at the end, until it was all leavened. All of it's leavened. You can't separate leavened from unleavened dough in a risen lump. It's impossible to do. It's not difficult to do like the tares. You don't threaten pulling out the wheat with the tares. They are one. The tares don't become wheat. The wheat doesn't become tares. They're mixed together. So a totally different picture and illustration which is your interpretation of that, from what I heard, is I think right on. Uh, in the church, there will be false and true Christians. There will be fake wheat and real wheat next to each other, and we can't always separate them. But at the end of the age, they will be separated. But here, how do you separate the leaven from the non-leavened? The, le the whole lump will be leavened. And so I think his picture, his point has to be something different than that. Otherwise, you're left with a completely corrupted kingdom. The whole kingdom's corrupt. And I, do, I don't see, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to make sense out of the rest of it. Um, how is the kingdom, what is the purpose of the kingdom, or what hope do we have left in the kingdom if it's all leavened? You follow me? It, it just seems the context is pretty strong for it. Mm. I, I just want to try on leaven. Okay. Leaven is just a word like yeast. If I put leaven into dough, I can make bread or I can make pizza or I can make... Leaven has nothing to do with evil or 
goodness. Leaven's just the term for spreading, right? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're saying leaven has to be one of the... Leaven is just spreading, whether that's good, evil, whatever. Leaven is, is not correlated back to good or evil. It's just the ability to spread. Leaven's not evil. Leaven is the spreading of evil. It's just the spreading piece, right? Leaven isn't... Don't correlate leaven to evil or good. It would be like saying paint is wall. No, the wall has paint. Does that help at all? So in the in the context, uh, I I can't. Maybe you could offer a possibility, but I cannot come up with an understanding that would tell me anything about the kingdom of God. Um, it, it really, at all, uh, it would be completely negative, which seems to contradict the context. The kingdom of God isn't negative. The kingdom of God's not going to be destroyed. The kingdom of God will continue despite the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Um, that's that's my fundamental problem. So as I read the as I read these paragraphs, yes. 12, 12 is there. Yes, the hypocrisy is there. Good good catch on that. That's absolutely no argument there. But here he decides to take the same word and apply it in a different way. Um, yeah, that's my best, best shot. Now, if you could offer me an interpretation of how leaven could be negative in this context and still tell us about the kingdom, then I would, you'd win, you know? <laughs> okay, now let me add one one thought on that. Uh, I don't know how much Jeremy actually says this or not, but he and I are pretty firmly committed to allowing the Scripture to interpret itself. Now, I think you all know that already. Scripture interprets Scripture. You know that in general terms. L let me show you how that applies here. If you, if you look up a commentary on Luke 13 and you read uh, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, nine out of ten of those commentaries are going to immediately say, we have the same parable in Matthew. And they jump to Matthew and they begin interpreting Luke based on Matthew. I have, a, I have a problem with that philosophy because Luke doesn't necessarily have a copy of Matthew in front of him, and Matthew didn't necessarily have a copy in front of, of Luke in front of him. Luke's writing his own book. Matthew writes his own book. They have overlapping topics, overlapping uh, histories, but they're not all talking about the same. So... When Luke tells us these kingdoms, it, or these kingdom parables, it's in a different context than Matthew's kingdom parables. Um, and so I'd let Matthew speak for himself. And if you wanted to argue in Matthew that a similar parable means something else, you might be right. But here in Luke I, uh, is where I'd have the problem um, making sense of what the kingdom of God is like if it's all corrupted and the whole thing has become leavened and sinful. So... Let Luke speak for himself. Let Matthew speak for himself. Not that you weren't doing that, but just something helpful to keep in mind. Pat? It's a question. Uh, <coughs> one sec. Microphone. <laughs> Microphone mandate. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, with that in mind, um, <clears throat> it just came to my mind. I don't know if it's significant. Um, 
is there significance that you see in um, the unleavened bread at the, pa at the Passover? Yes. Well, okay, so the unleavened bread at the Passover begins in, in Exodus, and the, so, uh, maybe a little bit of history would be helpful. Um, have any of you made that, uh, leavened bread? Yeah. Leavened. Leaven. Now, you cheat. A bunch of cheaters. <laughs> you, you take this dry molecule or um, particles of yeast and you throw it in water and you, you know, or if you get the instant rise yeast now, you just throw that right in the flour and you don't even have to hydrate it first. Okay, nobody in Israel was doing that. Now, if you just take flour and you add water and you mix it together and you leave it on your counter and you wait a week, there's leaven in it at the end of the week. Where does it come from? We used to think it came from the air. Apparently some comes from the air. I'm not a scientist, so I don't know all of this. But from what I've read, some comes from the air, but actually some of it is kind of uh, hidden in the flower itself. Uh, unreal, right? I mean, this is crazy. God adds the yeast that you need so that you get yeast inherently in the wheat. So you take the, the water, you mix it with the flour, you make the bread, and no leaven's in it, and you wait, and over time, you keep adding water, adding a little uh, flour, and it will become leavened. I did this uh, when, was it December? December. So that I had fully, completely, 100% sourdough bread. No yeast was ever added to it. And so, it was pretty good sourdough bread. It was. Haven't done it in a while. I got to pull it out of the fridge. So you take that flour, and this is what the ancients would do. They'd have their flour, and they'd keep it. And they, I mean, who knows how they discovered it. I suppose it's not too hard to imagine someone left it on the counter a little too long, and it gradually got leavened. So what they would do at the Passover is they would take that uh, little leavened lump that they'd keep, and they'd have to throw it away. Uh, I don't know all the reasons why. My guess is it w there was some element of if you keep that too long without enough salt and without any scientific equipment, you're going to get a lot of bacteria in, a, in it maybe that you don't want. I don't know if that's true or not because sourdough tends to be um, its own antibacterial. It kind of kills the bad stuff. But you can get bad stuff in it and it will grow along with it and that's got to get rid of it. So at the Passover, they would take that and throw it out and there was a penalty in Israel that anyone caught with leavened bread would be killed. So you, you knew like if you murder someone, you get killed and you know all these death penalty things in the Old Testament. One of them was that you had leavened bread in your house or in the camp during the time of the Passover. So I think it was 10 days before the Passover or a week, you had to clear it out, get rid of the old leaven, and that was a representation of the purification that God was going to do. The old wickedness was removed. Now there's a new lump. It's unleavened. And that's why Passover was always eaten with unleavened bread. Uniformly, it had to be unleavened bread. Even if you were a visitor, a sojourner in the land, you had to, to do this, get rid of your old leaven, start new with unleavened bread. Now, in a week or two, they'd have leavened bread again. That's the way it works. Um, 
but they cleaned it out at that point in time. So Passover is, is uh, very important in that regard. That's what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, remove the wicked person from your midst. He says, Christ is our Passover lamb. There's a Passover. If there's a Passover, we have unleavened bread. You need to remove the leaven because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. So I don't know. I didn't answer anything, but... Okay. Any questions? On, uh, other questions on last week? Simeon? Uh, I have a question about the kingdom. Yes. Is the kingdom now or later or both? Yes. And where might it be? Okay, uh, the kingdom of God is now. Christ said the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's among you. It's here now. This is part of the confusion and why he, he brings this up. How is the kingdom of God here? Well, the kingdom of God is here because there's a king here. The king is here, so there's a sense in which the kingdom is here. But none of that matches what you read about in the Old Testament and the prophecies, right? Uh, except there's this element of Emmanuel, God with us. And if God is with us, then surely the kingdom is with us. But that's very different than the prophecies that we had, which were of a physical, global, holy, everlasting kingdom. Is that kingdom here now, right now? Well, the beginnings of it are, but not that physical, global, holy kingdom. It's not here. Maybe the holy part, you could say, in the church, God has a holy people, people called out for his own possession, uh, and that part's here. But the physical Christ reigning on the throne of David, according to First uh, or Second Samuel 7 and First Chronicles 17, that has, that's not here right now. So the kingdom is now and not yet. It's, it's still to come. And just so you, maybe this, I don't know if this will help or not, but the amillennialists, om, om, if you don't know what that means, just forget it. But if you do, the amillennialists are, the kingdom is completely now, 100% now or 90, 95% now. God will come, God will come, but this is the millennial kingdom right now. And then the dispensationalists are, no, it's like 95% still to come and just a little bit here now. Um, so if you know those discussions, the focus is com totally opposite, um, inverse of one another. The kingdom is, is now, if, if you believe that uh, this is the millennial kingdom, which the amillennialists do, and the kingdom is not yet, uh, if you're waiting for that kingdom to come. Okay, Greg. I've got a follow-up question. Oh, because I've been reading Proverbs, and it says, seek first the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So which kingdom are we seeking? They're, they're, it's the same. That's why we say the kingdom is... confused. The kingdom, the kingdom is here now. Will it be a different kingdom when Christ returns? Will it be a more full kingdom? You know what it's like, Simeon? It's, it's like 11. <laughs> <laughs> If, no, seriously, though, if you take that leaven and you put it in, that leaven that you're putting in is a king, it's the kingdom, right? What do you have at the end of that risen lump? Sourdough bread. Yep, so, yeah, exactly. Well, what kind of, is it a different sourdough bread than the original one? No, no it's the it's same thing filled out, manifested. So similar to that, I don't know if that's exactly what Christ is saying here, but so you get we're the, seeking the rising or the growth of the kingdom of God? Both, yes. We're seeking, we're not only like John says, come Lord Jesus, come. 
He wants Christ to come now in his kingdom. We pray that, yes. But there is a kingdom here too, right now. It's the same thing. One is like a seed, the other is full grown, but it's the same thing. You don't put in a mustard seed and get out a new thing. You get the same thing full grown. So we've got a seed now. It will be full grown then. It's the same thing though. It's the same entity. It's just growing, changing. So God says, this is the, the, the leaven in the bread. This is what you have now. And it will become fully bread. And so we get to see the picture of beginning and end. And we have to strive for the kingdom to get to the full kingdom. We have to help it grow, in a sense. We have to work for it. We have to... This is... This is our striving. Yeah, don't don't mix them up too much because you don't work to make leaven grow. Right, I understand. And you don't work to make the mustard seed grow. Even in the parable, there's no watering or... That would be a different parable. There's no watering or tending. It just does it on its own. That, that in that sense, we're passive mm-hmm. in in the kingdom. Right. Whether or not we will enter the kingdom and be part of it, we're not passive in. But causing the kingdom to grow in that sense is beyond us. There's other passages that talk about how we interact with the kingdom. In right, that sense. yeast will leaven a loaf, no matter if you stand and watch it or not. Right. If you add too much salt, it won't. That's a different story. Yeah, that is why we should own. That's why we need to be salty <laughs> a little bit, right? Okay. I think Greg had a question, and then we'll yes, I have a question about the members of the kingdom of God, and so this has to do with us all being one in Christ in Ephesians chapter two. Therefore, remember that you Gentiles in in the flesh Mm -hmm. called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises. That's kind of what I'm keying on. Strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um... I just want to ask, in what sense are those covenants and promises still not ours as Gentiles, since as a dispensationalist, you would say that there still is a future hope for Israel that's separate, um, and in, the, in the fulfillment of the kingdom, it's separate from what we get as far as land and, and so forth. Uh, every single promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus. All of the promises that God has made to Israel are ours in Christ. All of them. The the question that the dispensationalists would answer differently is that will include national Israel. So we believe that God has a promise to national Israel that he has not yet fulfilled, that he will fulfill. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 7, 11. Romans 11 we read from Revelation 7. Maybe that was it. Uh, Romans 11, God has a plan for national Israel. He will save the nation as a whole in the future. That hasn't yet happened. But even that salvation, we will get to be a part of. Because the kingdom that Christ will set up in Israel, in Jerusalem, on David's throne, who's going to be stewards in that kingdom? 
those who are found faithful on watch at the coming of Christ will be given authority in the kingdom. So we, as those in Christ, will be part of that fulfillment. So there, there's, uh, in a sense, there is no promise of the Old Testament that we don't have a claim to. But our claim to the land is uh, not the same as the nation of Israel. In other words, we can't say, well, God promised it to us, so we're going to go over to Israel and take it over. No, we just know that in the future he will give it to us. It's a promise in that sense. Was there another one back there, Jake? Did you have... <clears throat> You'll ask me later if it's too hard. <laughs> um, so my question would be, in terms of striving, striving to enter the kingdom, uh, to put it <clears throat> crudely, what's the point I mean, why why do we why would we be interested in striving if we're either going to enter or not enter based on faith? Because if your faith is real, you will strive. If your if your faith is dead, you will have no works and you won't strive and you'll go you'll be cast out of the kingdom. Okay, so we should notice in ourselves a desire to strive or just that God gives us the strength when we strive, or what would that look like? Well, I think both of those are good. Uh, we will notice a desire to strive. When we hear our master say strive, what do we say? I think I to do the work. Does that sound like a faithful servant? Okay, I stacked the deck. but <laughs> No, a fa what does a faithful servant say when his master says strive? Okay, Lord, where, how? And, and that is all hearing the word and doing it, hearing the word and keeping it. Um, so we don't, we don't strive because we're going to earn it. We strive because he has been gracious to us. He has given us salvation. And we should see both the desire to strive and the strength that comes from his spirit to do that work we couldn't do on our own. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Yes. Oh, wait. Dania, sorry. We got a line. I just have a question about like new heaven and new earth. Why does he why does God get rid of the old heaven? Why does God get rid of the old heaven? Uh, okay. Here's here's the complexity. There there's there's an old earth and there is a new earth. There's an old heaven and a new heaven. Separate from that, there's heaven where God is. So when you look up to the sky and you say, look at the handiworks, look at the heavens that he spread out with his fingers, that's heaven, but that's not the same heaven as where God is. So there's the heavens and then the higher heavens. Paul says the third heavens. He, he, calls, he calls God's uh, say city, if you will, where God lives, is the third heaven. You have what we might call the sky, and then we have outside of our atmosphere, uh, what would he call that? Space. Space. So we have the sky and space, and then we have heaven, where God is. Well, the Hebrews and, and the ancients in general would call all three of those heaven. So where God is right now is heaven. That is not going to be done away with. The sky and space will be made new. 
Yeah. Okay, I didn't understand that. I thought he was going to get rid of... Because kingdom of God is heaven, right? Yes. So he was not going to get rid of kingdom of God. That's right. Okay. He won't. And is, heaven is like... Okay. Yeah, and if if you um, if you remember what Christ said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So where he is now is heaven, and in heaven he's making a new Jerusalem, and that is going to come down to earth, and earth and heaven will be one. In in the end, this is Revelation 21, and in heaven the new heaven. New Jerusalem comes down to earth. They're one. God is now among us. That's the final eternal state. Um, the old heaven and the old earth are done away with. Second Peter three says in in a great like conflagration, a great burning of heat. It's going to be melted, if you will, uh, and then He's going to make it anew. He's going to remake it into the new heaven and the new earth. Okay. Yep. Okay. Kathy. This was going back to the question about striving. Would you say that striving would be the same as bearing fruit and working out your faith? Yes, exactly. Uh, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So yes, they're all three the same thing. Striving is bearing fruit, or it's at least part of bearing fruit. You bear w fruit when you strive. That is working out your salvation uh, because you know God is working in you. A another one right, uh, well, it's in my mind, it's right next to it. it Ephesians chapter 2. Um, God, we are saved by grace, not by works. And then in verse 9, he says, for, um, you know what, it's right here. I'm on the page. Let me just read it to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God made us for these good works to do. We strive to do it, not to earn our salvation, but because God's given us salvation. Follow up on that? Yeah. yeah me so, too. Oh, you too? Uh, it'll be fast. So in verse 24, it says, strive to enter, to enter by the narrow door. So when do we know we're in? When you're in. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an answer for that? Maybe. She <laughs> um, when do we know we're in? Okay, so there's a real sense in which we can know right now whether or not we're in. Because the spirit that he gives us testifies in our own heart saying we have been born of God. That's real now. But that's not final. Because what happens when we, we you know, have a bad day and we say forget this stuff. I'm not striving. I'm going to strive after something else. What happens to that? Our, our What we call assurance is diminished because we've walked away from the Lord. We're not walking according to His Spirit. We're not striving to enter. And so then we're, we begin to think, maybe I will be knocking on the outside. And so that assurance that we have isn't final. It's not um, unchanging. But we can have that now as we follow him because who carries out his word? 
His children do. Who obeys, who hears his voice and follows him? His sheep do. And so as we follow him, as we hear his voice and walk with him, we have that assurance. But that assurance is not final, obviously, until we actually are in the kingdom. But Paul, Paul, uh, who else? John, Paul, uh, at least they make it clear. We can have that assurance and God wants us to have that assurance as we obey him. That's, does it kind of answer? Sorry. Related, uh, related passage, Second Peter, this is a super passage of scripture. Second Peter 1, 3, right down through 11. Yes. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then he goes through this whole a list of things, mm-hmm. character qualities. And verse 5, for if... For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he goes through the the whole list, virtue and knowledge and all the things we're supposed to be making every effort. Then this is the really interesting verse, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. So there, there we are, called and elected, but yeah, we're supposed to make every effort to make yep. it sure, you know. Yep. And in verse so, 8, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So same thing. As you're striving, it, you're, you begin to bear that fruit and grow. They, these qualities are yours to some extent, but then they're growing even more. They're more yours now than they were 15 years ago. Well, we're not going to read the whole book, you know. Uh, We could, I guess. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wanda? Oh, uh, microphone here. I might have heard you wrong or misunderstood you, but um, I thought I heard you say your, your assurance is sure, but it's not sure because you might have an off day. I thought I heard you say that. I don't know, maybe I didn't. But like you said, everybody has off days where you're like, yep. oh, man. But I think the fact that we get convicted, the Holy Spirit uh, you know, pricks us to repent, mm-hmm. to um, acknowledge that. And some verses that I rely on, and I will butcher them when I quote them, but um, he remembers we are dust. That helps me. I fail, but you remember I was dust. And also, um, when your heart condemns you, he is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. So thank God, you know I want to follow you, but I'm going to fail. And so I kind of think, don't we have to hang on to some of that? Because otherwise, it's like doom and gloom. I mean, I know everything you're saying, but did you say your assurance isn't, because what if I die on an off day? No, I mean, no, no, no. You know? You, you will. I, you will die on an off day. Yeah. So when you say unchanging, I, I, I feel like my, I always thought the Holy Spirit lives in me. My assurance is, it's there. Okay, it is. So the... <laughs> Jeremy's going to probably need to come back and address this again because there's no way in eight minutes I can do it. But here's the, the thing about assurance is 
Yes, everything you're saying is true. Yes, the Spirit testifies to your own spirit. You are born of God because you love Him and want to follow Him. So what happens? You have an off day, and the next day you wake up and you say, hey, that was kind of fun. I think I'll do that again. And then the next day you do the same thing. And then six months later you haven't been to church. You've been involved in all sorts of wickedness and evil. You've been a worker of evil for six months. Do you look back and say, but I know I'm saved? Or do you say, I better strive to enter that rest or I'm not going in? That, that's the, the real significant part that I, I want to guard us against. And, and probably it's just it's my own history and people I've met and talked with who have done exactly that. No, I've been in church in six years. But I know whom I have believed in. Really, like you're, you've left your wife, you've left the faith in all practical senses, and you think you're saved? What kind of assurance is that? That's the kind of assurance I want to guard against. Not the kind of assurance that says, I just snapped at my wife, I'm probably going to hell. You know, that's not the, the point. But when he convicts, of, uh, convicts us of our sin, we confess our sin, he's faithful to forgive us, he restores us. Um, absolutely. Zeb, um, the way that I've heard it described that I think is really helpful is that you've got subjective and objective assurance. You've got an objective assurance based on the working of the Holy Spirit and Christ's death on your behalf. That's there if you believe, if you truly believe that, that's true. But what testifies to that aspect of your assurance is your working out your faith with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The, the striving that we hear about. So, it's it's sort of a multi-layer thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's absolutely a sense in which it's like, yeah, we have bad days, and we look at this like, oh man, I just screwed up. Like, if it were, and if it were only based on that, and your whole assurance was based only on your work, we would all pretty much have no assurance. We would have no assurance. <laughs> but we can see how the Spirit works in our lives and drags us kicking and screaming along sometimes. Um, so that, that to me is a helpful way of looking at it, the, that sort of objective versus subjective assurance. Yeah. yeah. And what you can do is say, the objective trumps everything else, and because I know I said this prayer 10 years ago, I know I'm saved. No, no, what, 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 what about the subjective? Is there anything in your life that's bearing fruit and showing that that's real? Um, so combine those two. Good, good illustration. Yes. I just had a quick question. So yeah, right. The, <laughs> um, in the verse where it's saying that, uh, where is it? Okay, striped into the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Yeah. Um, why is it that they're not able? Because I was reading in Matthew seven where it says, uh, uh, "Ask and will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you." For everyone yep. who asks receives. Who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. So how could they seek the kingdom and not be able to enter it? Yeah. So the answer comes in the parable that he tells us. In the parable, when do they seek to enter? After it is too late. The door has already been shut. They've died or Christ has returned or whatever, you know, however that works out. That's when they're seeking. Let us in, Lord, let us in. No, you had your chance. You didn't want the kingdom. And that's why they're not able to enter. Okay. That's, I don't believe that's talking about in this life. That's after the judgment has already begun. 
It was a quick question. Good for you. <laughs> I got lucky, probably. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Wife? <laughs> I know, I always hesitate to ask because I could just ask at home. Ask at home but, um, so verse about that. Chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, where it says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah. What does that mean, he will be humbled? The one who has exalted himself will be humbled. So in, I mean, obviously I know what it means to be humbled, but I think I've always taken that as they may not get into the kingdom right. of heaven. Correct. But then you go back to the verse in Matthew 20, I think it is, that talks about, you know, he who's first will be last and he who's last will be first. And so, like, last to me means, well, he'll get in and he'll just be last. No. No, th this is why you don't want to jump to Matthew to figure out what Luke means. Um, you, and really, you don't even want to jump from Luke to Luke necessarily. Look at the, look at the context of, of that paragraph. And what he's saying in Luke 14, it, it, the parable that he tells about the wedding feast, and you go and you sit down in the place of honor, and what do you expect? They're going to kick you out of the place of honor. You're going to be shamed. So instead, go to the low place, and then the, the, the host can say, hey, you shouldn't be there. Let me bring you up to this place. And he says in the same way, if you exalt yourself, in the kingdom, you're going to be humbled, meaning you're not going to be in the kingdom. But if you humble yourself, God will exalt you to the kingdom. So in, in, in Luke 14, he's talking about whether or not you're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. Similar to uh, verse 30, chapter 13, verse 30. That's different than other passages where Christ is talking about serve one another, uh, the, you know, uh, anyone who wishes to be great in the kingdom must be the servant of all. Those are other passages that use the same words, but for very different meanings. I guess it was just part, <clears throat> part four of C, where it says the lowly are allowed in. Yes. It's almost like, well, they're allowed in too. I, you know, I mean, I know that's not true, but it just... When I read it, it's like, well, anyway. So I'm trying to make sense of what 30 means in the context. The first will be last, or some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And the context is the kingdom and who's in and who's out. Who's outside the door, who's inside the door. Who's knocking outside and who's not. And so I have to connect it to that. So in that context, I think the last means... Um, the, in, the, in this world, who's viewed as the last or the lowly, they're going to be allowed in. Those who have humbled themselves, God will exalt. But those who have exalted themselves, God will cast down. He will humble. Another, I think maybe one time for one more question. And then, of course, you can ask me more later, I mean, afterwards if you want. Okay, I guess I don't. I was always thinking like a lot of Christians think there are levels of like in heaven. Some will be higher, some will be lowest. So I'm confused. Like, so when they say the least will be last, so that only means that you will be the least will enter the kingdom, and the one that were proud will not enter the kingdom. So, but there will still be levels of like hierarchy, like in yeah. heaven. I'm confused a bit. Yeah. Uh, so don't. Don't assume when last and first are mentioned, they are always talking about the same thing. 
Some goes back to the eleven. Some, sometimes they mean different things. Uh, when when we're talking in verse thirty, thirteen thirty, about the last being first and the first who will be last, I think Christ is talking about those who think they're first here. Those who are the the hypocrites, the Pharisees, they're going to be cast out. They're going to be on the outside knocking to try to come in. Those who are humbled here, like the crippled woman who Christ healed, they're going to be let into the kingdom. They're going to be uh, exalted and brought in. Okay, So that's one topic. Close that door. Now, new topic. Of those who go into heaven, will there be levels? Uh, yes, there's no question there'll be levels because it's only the names of the apostles that are written on the pillars of the city of, of heaven. That's a level. I My name won't be there. <laughs> I guarantee you, my name's not going to be on the pillar next to Peter's or Paul's. They're, they're, they're in a different category. Um, <clears throat> also, we have the parable of the talents, the parable of the minas, similar parables where if you're faithful with what God's given you, you're going to be let in. But the one who is given 10 or 5, and then the one who is given 2, they're going to have different rewards. The rewards are different. They correspond to what you are faithful with. But all those who are faithful will go into the kingdom. So two different, two different ways of talking about first and last. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. If you have more questions, feel free to stick around. I've got nothing to do until 6 o'clock. All right, let me pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word and how it instructs and teaches us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, each of us would be faithful to go back like the Bereans to, to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. I pray that uh, none here would just take my word for it, but that each would go back to your word to see if what I am saying is what you have said. May we be a people of your word, uh, who hear your word, who tremble at it, and who keep it. And I just ask that you would do that work in our hearts and in our midst, that we might honor you, that we might strive to enter your kingdom and one day see you face to face. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.